Well, good morning, everyone. We're continuing in our sermon series, Missional Heart, today. And I have the privilege of speaking with you about something which is at the very core of having a missional heart. It's something at the very core of being a disciple of Jesus. And yet, I'm pretty sure it's something that is avoided by both Christians and non-Christians alike. And of course, I'm talking about the subject of evangelism, talking about people, uh, talking with people about Jesus. I'm going to get to my scripture text in just a moment. But right up front, let's talk about some of the reasons that people avoid sharing or avoid listening to the gospel message. Perhaps you avoid witnessing because you've experienced or you fear that you will experience rejection in speaking to others about Christ. You believe the gospel yourself, but you would feel uncomfortable getting pushback from people when you begin to talk about Jesus. Or maybe you've heard someone say, well, hey, all faith roads lead to God. doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe something. Maybe you've heard that and you haven't really known how to respond and so you just let it drop. Maybe when you've heard someone say that all faith roads lead to God, it sounded like a reasonable argument to you. So you decided that you don't need to share your faith. Just leave people alone and let them believe what they believe. But there's a problem with this. It may seem loving to do that, but actually it's not. It may be non-confrontational, but it's not loving. Someone may even be thinking evangelism, mission, see, that's my problem with you evangelical Christians. You think you have to convert people. Believe what you want to believe, but don't try to cause other people to believe what you believe. That's so narrow. Why can't you just be more tolerant of other points of view? Why do you have to proselytize? That's my problem with Christians. Well, let's examine these assertions. I'm grateful for Tim Keller's response to this argument and for his many insights and some of the illustrations regarding this topic today. When someone says all faith roads lead to God, what they're saying is that all religions are the same and that no one religion is more true than another. But if it's narrow to say that Jesus is the only way to God, then to say that one view of religion, that is that they are all equal, is just as narrow. Some people today define themselves as spiritual but not religious. They say, I don't like any organized religion. They may like Jesus, but probably not the church. They want to chart their own path, decide for themselves what is true and what is not. Well, spiritualism is a form of what we call expressive individualism, which could be defined, I think, as a new religion in our postmodern Western world. If you believe or insist that it's wrong to try to convert people, there are at least two problems with that. One has to do with logic. The other has to do with love. More on that one later. 
When anyone says, you shouldn't try to convert people, it's narrow and intolerant. Logically, that is an attempt to convert you to their point of view. So they're doing the very same thing that they're chastising you for, and they're being hypocritical. What they're saying is, we will not tolerate intolerance. So if you believe it's wrong to convert people, you've been converted. You know, I just really don't understand why people get upset when people try to share the gospel with someone, when they try to convince them that Jesus Christ is the only way to reach God. I mean, we all try to convert people all the time in many different ways. You go to a new restaurant and you think the food and the service are fantastic and it's all you can speak about for a couple of weeks to your friends. Chevy dealers try to convert Ford drivers. Apple users try to convert PC users. Republicans try to convert Democrats. Wichita State fans say to KU fans, you should be a shocker instead of a wildcat. Wait, I mean, instead of a Jayhawk. Seeking to convert people to your point of view is virtually unavoidable, and there's nothing inherently wrong with it. Well, wait a minute, there may be one. Cat lovers trying to convert dog lovers. That, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. Okay. Well, in our time together this morning, I want to do three things. First, I want to define the gospel, what it is and what it isn't. I think it's important to do, to do this because knowing the differences will help you when you get ready to share Christ with others. Second, what are the implications of really knowing Christ and experiencing the gospel yourself? And third, how can we begin to do this again, afresh, anew? If you were asked to define the gospel or to present the gospel to someone else, could you do it? What would you say? I ask this because many people I speak with today can't, um, can't do so, even people who have grown up in church. So that tells me that there is confusion over what the gospel is. So let's clear up that confusion. Our first passage we're gonna look at today is from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. We're reading from chapter 15, verses one through eight. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Kind of a strange 
translation, I think, there, that last abnormally born. But verses 3 and 4 in what we have just read give what is perhaps the most succinct record of the gospel contained in Scripture, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul lists two historic events in Jesus' life, his crucifixion and his resurrection, and he tells the Corinthians very succinctly why these things happened and said, this is the gospel that I passed on to you and that you believed. The gospel is not about the teachings of Jesus. It is about who he was and what he did. The gospel writers Matthew, Luke, and John would add to this list of important events the incarnation for that event, God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus, had to take place before the crucifixion and resurrection could. You know, we speak of miracles like the incarnation and the resurrection as being phenomenal, meaning highly extraordinary or exceptional, and they are that. The meaning of phenomenal in our culture today has come to mean something that is super cool and amazing. But that's not really what the, phenom- what the word phenomenal means. It means that which appears to the senses. It means that which is observable, that, ch- that which belongs to the realm of touch, taste, sight, hearing, and smell. In the incarnation, God became phenomenal, observable in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The crucifixion was phenomenal in that Jesus' death was not a normal death. Sure, it was a common practice by the Romans in that day, but Jesus' crucifixion, unlike others, was accompanied by an earthquake and darkness at midday. As the, sin of, as the wrath of God was poured out against sin of all mankind. These were observed events which the gospel writers recorded for them to know and for us to know. In the resurrection, Jesus was raised from the dead, came out of the tomb, appeared to many people just as we read a few minutes ago. After this resurrection, Thomas, doubting Thomas, put his hand in Jesus' hands and sighed and experienced him again through touch, sight, and hearing. Some of you here that are as old as me may remember an old Don Francisco song called He's Alive. There was a line in that song that said, suddenly the room was filled with strange and sweet perfume, referring to the fact that Jesus' dead body had had been buried with perfumes and spices. So now they were actually smelling his resurrected body. They experienced him by sight, touch, smell, hearing, and they observed him eating and tasting a piece of fish, proving that he was not a ghost. His resurrection was phenomenal. All of this and more is why the Apostle John, in his first epistle, began that by saying, that which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The gospel is not a myth, as many people want to call it. And neither is it simply the teachings of Jesus. A lot of people say, you know, I love the teachings of Jesus. I love hearing about the grace of God. Why can't you just dwell on that? Well, the answer is because that's not the gospel. That is not to say that Jesus did not teach. Of course he did. It's not to say that God didn't pour out grace. Of course he did. Jesus' teaching pointed to his identity as God, which is important for us to know, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, and that he proved by his resurrection, his deity, and his authority, not only to die for us, but also to cancel the penalty of our sins. The gospel is about the historic events surrounding Jesus' life. Good advice, good teaching do not save you. Jesus' death and resurrection save you. C.S. Lewis said, God does not come with teaching. He comes with himself. This is one of the key differences between Christianity and all other religions. Other religions give you principles for life and perhaps tell you how to get along with your, with your neighbor. They are essentially perspectives or philosophies on life, whereas Christianity is essentially a phenomenon, historic events which open the door to a relationship with God. Keller says, all religions have historical events and miracle stories. For example, there is a story in the Quran that tells how Muhammad ran into a cave to escape his enemies. And a spider came very quickly and spun this massive web over the entrance to the cave. And his enemies came by and they looked at that and they thought, well, he can't be in there. So they went on their way and Muhammad lived on. In the miracle events in other religions, the miracles are meant to accredit the teacher and the teaching. Whereas with Christianity, it is the events which save you and the teaching of the gospel is primarily about the events. To help us understand this, we should talk about the meaning of the word gospel and give an illustration of what it means. The word gospel means good news, of course, but not good news in general. It means, as we have said, good news about specific events that are good news to everybody and can change your life. In the year 490 BC, King Darius of Persia sent 600 warships filled with warriors to a seaside plain in what is modern day Greece called Marathon, northeast of the city of Athens. King Darius was upset because the Athenians, or Greeks as we will call them, aided the Ionians, and Ionia is present western day Turkey. Um, the Athenians helped the Ionians in their rebellion against Persia. And so Darius said, this is going to be payback. The Greeks learned of King Darius' plan 
and they hastily organized an army of 10,000 men and marched the 26 miles to Marathon to engage the Persian army. They were outnumbered by the Persians three to one. Nobody expected them to win. They fought with the Persians at Marathon for three weeks and prevailed mightily. 6,400 Persians died. Only 192 Greeks died. Meanwhile, the people of Athens were waiting to hear what happened. If the Persians won, it would mean that they would have to fight for their lives. The Greek army sent a runner, Pheidippides, who ran the entire 26 miles, and yes, that's where we get our marathon. He ran that entire 26 miles without stopping to to deliver the good news. Victory, we have prevailed. And then he fell over and died, which is exactly why I don't run marathons. (laughs) The good news was about an actual event. Victory over the Persians. Pheidippides would not have said, good news, there are ways that we can work to get along better with the Persians. He would not have said, good news, the Persians are on their way to Athens and you're going to have to fight to save yourselves. The good news was, the Persians have been defeated. The good news was not philosophical. It wasn't a set of teachings or advice that they would have to follow in order to save themselves. Good news is never you have to do something to save yourself. Good news is something's been done for you. Something has been done in history that changes everything. And that leads us to another major difference between the gospel and other belief systems. The good news of Christianity is something's been done for you. Specifically, your sins have been taken care of by God's grace, by his actions. Every other belief system in the world says you have to do this and that in order to be saved. Buddhism says our problems are caused by desire, grasping, and self-centeredness. And we would agree with much of that. But Buddha said you have to work to overcome it. Hinduism says much the same thing, but adds the concept of karma that you will be reincarnated and have to do it all over again if you don't get over your grasping and self-centeredness. Islam at least talks about God being merciful, but it also says that you must do these things. And I say this to you as someone who loves Muslims. Confess there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Fast during the month of Ramadan. Give alms to the poor. Make pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in your lifetime. Pray five times a day. If you do these things, God may let you into his paradise if your good deeds outweigh your bad. Expressive individualists make up their own rules as to what makes them good, and then, if they're really honest, they would have to admit that they don't even live up to their own beliefs. All religions understand that our problem is guilt and self-centeredness, but none of the rest of them bring you the good news that something's been done for you, only that you must strive without ceasing. In fact, those were Buddha's final words to his followers. Strive without ceasing. Jesus' last words on the cross were, 
It is finished. Our other text for today is from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. All this, and he's, by that he means he's referring to the gospel message, is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now the word reconciliation here means to be restored to favor. That's what Christ has done for us on the cross. He has restored us to favor with God. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. My friends, God never calls you into a personal, life-changing experience with him without then saying to you, go out. Go out and share with others what I've done for you. This was true even in the Old Testament. God called Abraham into a relationship by faith and then sent him out to a land that he didn't know and said to him, you will be a blessing. Moses had a life-changing experience with God at the burning bush in the wilderness and then God said, now go to Pharaoh. The prophet Isaiah had a life-changing encounter with God where the angel of the Lord took a burning coal from the altar and touched his lips with it. And then he said to Isaiah, whom shall I send? And Isaiah's response was, here am I, send me. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, sent his disciples out two by two with the message of the gospel of the kingdom. And at the end of his earthly ministry, he said to them, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. If you've encountered Jesus Christ, not in some vague, nominal way, but in a personal, intimate way, experiencing his grace in that he has exchanged his life for your sin, you are compelled to go out and share him with others. Keller says, if you've seen the Greeks beat the Persians, you don't keep that news to yourself. For example, let's say you discovered a miracle cure for cancer and could share it free of charge with everyone else. You wouldn't say, well, I don't think I will share this with anybody. I mean, it helped me and it means something to me, but who's to say that it will mean anything to anyone else? Why should I enforce my interpretation of this treatment and cure on other people? You wouldn't say that. You would go out and tell everybody. That's what you would do. But in our Western world, that's not what I observe. We're here. Please understand, I don't say this as someone that has this down pat and has it wired. But why have we stopped witnessing? Has our love grown cold? 
Have we become lukewarm? Is it just that we don't want to be seen as intolerant? Okay, can people be intolerant when they share the gospel? Of course they can. You can be arrogant and condescending. You can use coercive or manipulative tactics. But if you recognize that God has saved you through grace and that not because of what you have done, you don't have any reason to boast or be arrogant. You go out with humility and with gratitude and a new fullness in your heart to live sacrificially for other people. You go out to battle injustice in the world. You go out as his ambassador with the message of the gospel and you implore people to be reconciled to God. Finally, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here Paul gives us another succinct statement of the gospel message. Remember I said that the word reconciliation means restored to favor. It also means an exchange. Jesus exchanged his perfect goodness and favor with God for our sin. It doesn't mean that Jesus actually became sinful, but that on the, on the cross, God treated him as if he were sinful. He exchanged his righteousness for our sin so that God could treat us with the same favor and status of sonship that Jesus had with the Father. I believe God is calling us to be both humble and bold ambassadors in taking this message to others. Humble because we know that we are saved by his grace and not his deeds. So we have no right to be arrogant toward anyone. But bold because we are secure in our status with him as his sons and daughters. So we don't have to worry about what people think. You may have heard it said that St. Francis of Assisi said this, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. In truth, there's no evidence that St. Francis ever said that. Actually, well, you know, I admit, it sounds good at first, but Jesus said we are to be his witnesses, and a witness gives testimony using words. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, by the gospel of grace. Pastor Stan has asked us to take the gospel to the end of the street and to the end of the earth. We're doing that in Macedonia and in other places around the world. So let's take seriously the challenge to do so here as well. If you're willing to do so, but perhaps you've fallen out of practice, or if you're not quite sure how to do it, but you're willing to learn, I want to ask you to pick up your Connect card and find in it right above where you write your name and address a box that says, I want to learn more about how to share the gospel. Please do it now. Very soon, churches all over Wichita 
are going to be engaging in training to help us know how to take the gospel to our neighbors and to anyone else for that matter. Warren mentioned this past Sunday and Pastor Stan has recently encouraged the pastors who have participated in the Wichita prayer movement to encourage their people to participate in evangelism training. Friends, it's not about sharing some rote, canned spiel about the gospel to a total stranger. We're talking about building relationships with people and learning how to share the gospel organically, naturally, purposefully. And if you want to get started right away, the director of a local ministry called His Helping Hands, which we support through a benevolence ministry called Love in the Name of Christ, has invited anyone who is interested to join them on Saturday mornings between 9 and 11.30 to share the gospel with people in need of assistance or simply to observe how it's done. One of the founders of His Helping Hands, Jim Snodgrass, attends the Friday morning Bible study that Warren referenced last week. Jim tells us that so far this year, 179 people have come to Christ through this Saturday morning gospel sharing. You can also join us on the first Tuesday of each month at 8 a.m., which is this coming Tuesday, where we will discuss sharing the gospel and praying for people to be transformed by it. That happens right here. And as I close, may I speak especially to anyone here who has never encountered Jesus in a genuine, personal way. Please don't think it's enough to just warm a pew, to be a nominal churchgoer. If I ask you how you know you are a Christian and your first response is, well, I try to be a good person, then you don't understand the gospel. You're still working. You're still striving without ceasing. Please come forward after the service and ask someone to help you pray to receive Christ. And let me speak to those here who have believed the gospel but struggle to believe that God really loves you. You believe that Jesus died for you, but maybe because you continue in some sin, you wonder if he really has forgiven you. You, you remember his death on the cross, yes. You confess your sin, but then the way you think of the gospel is that, good, I've got a second chance. Now I can work to be good again. You're still striving without ceasing. You're still trying to save yourself. You haven't fully rested in the good news that it's not something you have to do. It's been done for you. It is finished. Let me encourage you too to come, for, if that's you, let me encourage you to come forward and pray with someone too. Make peace with the fact that even though sin still lurks in your old nature, in Jesus, you are more loved and accepted than you ever hoped or imagined. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your teaching. It is rich. Anyone who reads your words will be impacted by them. But if that is all you had done, if you had simply taught and died and your body was still in the tomb, 
we would be dead in our trespasses and sins. You did more than teach. You lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, exchanging your righteousness for our sin on the cross so that we might be able to experience what it means to be a son or daughter of God. It is finished. It's been done for us. Now, Lord, spur us by your spirit to be gospel-speaking ambassadors, compelling people we know to be reconciled to God. In your name I pray, amen.